Would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord, we come to You this morning woefully inadequate. Inadequate because of our lack of, of ingrained righteousness. We need righteousness imputed to us. Thank You that You've made that possible for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we are also woefully inadequate on our own to discern what You have for us in Your Word this morning. Holy Spirit, would You come help us to see You in the text. May we see Jesus. May we give glory and honor to You for the truths that we learn in Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is profitable. It is inspired and it is inerrant. It is, it is Your Word. Help us to put ourselves under it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. This morning we will be looking at the first 13 verses of 2 Peter chapter 3. November 8th is on a lot of people's calendars. Midterm elections are almost here. One can't help but be reminded of this reality, whether it's being bombarded by all of the yard signs and billboards, or whether you try and watch something on YouTube or Amazon or regular TV. We are inundated with this reality. Some claim that this election will be the most significant election in the history of the U.S. While it is true that each election matters and it is important for us to exercise our civic duty and vote, this kind of language is often overblown. It, it becomes common now for every election to be the most significant election in the history of the U.S., but I want us to try this morning as much as we can to divert our attention from, from that to something more significant. Because what Peter is going to show us in 2 Peter 3, what we're going to see in 2 Peter 3 is a glimpse of what will truly be the most significant event in the history of the world since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In these 13 verses, Peter weaves his way from talking about the false teachers to assuring you and I that this significant event, the return of Christ, will happen no matter what the doubters and scoffers say. We are drawn from indifference at the prospect of Christ's return to eagerly embracing the time when Christ returns. We are called to embrace the truth that others have overlooked. And that's the title of the message this morning. Embracing overlooked truth. Embracing the overlooked truth. Peter's central idea in this text, in Second Peter 3, 1-13, is that Christians must embrace God's Word and God's promises so that they govern our daily life. That's, that's the main argument that Peter is going to be making in 2 Peter 3, 1-13. That Christians must embrace God's Word and God's promises so that they govern our daily life. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look with me, if you would, at verses 1-7. through In verses 1-7, through we're going to see that we are to embrace God's Word. That's point number one. Embrace 
God's word. Follow along as I begin reading 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In in these seven verses, we see our need to embrace God's word. In this text, Peter identifies his purpose for writing not only this letter, but his first letter. We see in verses 1 and 2 why Peter is writing. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. In other words, Peter is saying, in both of these letters that I've written to you, my desire has been to work you up so that you will remember something. I don't want you to forget. And if we would look back at 2 Peter 1, we would see a similar emphasis when Peter began this letter. He wanted to stir them up by way of reminder. What does he want them to remember? Beginning of verse 2, that you may be mindful. What does he want them to be mindful of? That you may be mindful of the words. Peter goes on to specify what words he is referring to. First, he is referring to the words spoken by the holy prophets. The words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That is a reference to the Old Testament. But he doesn't stop there. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. That is, the apostolic commands spoken by the apostles, which would be our New Testament, which specifically what Peter has in mind is the Gospel that has been entrusted to them. Because the Gospel commands people to do something. The Gospel commands men everywhere to repent and believe. So be mindful of the words, the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment that the apostles have given. This seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, we should be able to remember that, right? Does Peter really need to remind us of things that we already know? Come on, Peter, we're adults here. He does. He does need to remind us of things that we already know. Why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. The stakes are high. So he calls us to be mindful of the words. What would it look like for us to be mindful of the words? Or to remember the predictions as some translations have it? Peter wants us to remember the words 
to the point that they inform how we live and walk. In other words, this is not just kind of like a, how many of you remember the Pythagorean theorem and you guys can kind of like, oh yeah, I remember that from back in grade school. No, no, no. This is not something tucked away in a mothballed closet of your mind. This is something that ought to be governing how you live your daily life. Mindfulness works itself out in a way of life governed by that thing that is to be remembered. Friday night, we, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to the Genesis Gala. And it started at 6.30. I knew about it. But what would it look like for me to be mindful of it? Well, If I'm mindful of the gala on Friday evening, I'm going to make proper plans and I'm going to be ready to go to the gala that starts at 6.30. If, on the other hand, I get caught up in something, tailgating for the Phillies, or getting prepped, or just rejoicing in in what the results of Thursday night were in the football world, and and I look at the clock and it's 6.30, And then I remember about the Genesis Gala. Was I mindful about the gala? No. I forgot all about it. It was in there, but I wasn't mindful about it. Peter's point is that the Word of God ought to be the governing, can't-forget-about-it reality that governs our daily lives. We ought to be mindful of the words. In verses 3 through 4, Peter provides the reason why his command isn't as straightforward as it might seem. In other words, this is not a, a, a nice, clean path that we just walk forward and it's all, uh, you know, just laying back and popping bonbons until Christ returns. We look at verse 3 and we see there's something that Peter wants us to know. Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days. We saw this illustrated in chapter 2, that these scoffers were not just scoffing, but they they were rebutting the truth of the Word of God with their own lies and deceptions. These scoffers are described by how they act. They walk according to their own lusts. They're described by what they say. They doubt the promise that God will return. And they're described by what they deliberately forget. Notice at the beginning of verse 3, scoffers are going to come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Beginning of verse 4, they say, where is the promise of His coming? Because from their perspective, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then they're described in verse 5 as something, by something that they willfully forget. Let's take a minute to ponder what it is that these scoffers were saying. They are skeptical that the return of Christ will actually happen. Their reason for thinking this is they look back at history from, as they look back at history from their perspective, they haven't seen God intervene yet. That's what Peter means when he says that they say all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
Even in Jesus coming to earth, they don't see the type of cosmological event that is promised in Christ's return. They look back from the beginning up to this point and they say, yeah, there's, God's not been involved in this thing. What makes you think that He's actually going to do what He said He was going to do if He hasn't done anything up to this point? We could perhaps articulate their position this way. Because God has never done anything like this before, I see the consistency of the world and I'm skeptical at the notion that Christ might come back. I I don't think that's going to be a thing. But in verses 5 and 6, Peter provides a concise rebuttal of the scoffer's view in teaching. He says they willfully forget. What do they willfully forget? Look with me at verses 5 and 6. They forget that by the Word of God, interesting, we're to be mindful of the words, and here Peter is bringing in the Word of God. By the Word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. By which, the Word in the water, the world that then existed perished. There's a reference to the flood. Being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same Word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They willfully forget. They, as some translations put it, deliberately overlook. They, as another translation puts it, are willingly ignorant of some key details. This is not something that is an accidental oversight on their part. They know what God's Word says and they have moved past it. As one one person put it, these scoffers are dumb on purpose. The key point of Peter's rebuttal to the scoffers is that the very act of creating the world was itself an act of divine intervention. Look look at what Peter says. By the Word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Recall back to Genesis chapter 1 with me if you will. What's the very first thing that God does? He speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do we remember about those times? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Peter's point is that the creation of the world was itself an act of divine intervention. The worldview of the scoffers is totally askew from where it ought to be. Not just the creation of the world, but the order placed into the world is an act of divine intervention. The fact that we have four ordered seasons. The fact that we have a predictable sunrise and sunset. Well, except for daylight savings time and when it ends. The fact that we, there is a predictability about nature. There is an orderliness of nature. Roses don't change shape. Apples don't change taste. 
The maintenance of the world, even to this day, points to the fact that God daily and constantly is involved in the affairs of the world. So the scoffers look down through time and they say, I don't see God at all. Everything's the same way it was from the day the world was created. And Peter says, what? You're not looking at things properly. God hasn't not been involved in the world since the day of creation. But notice what Peter does at the end in verse 7. Against the threat of the scoffer's teaching, Peter assures us that there is a greater threat. The scoffers and their threat of what they're teaching is not the primary threat. There is a greater threat looming for the scoffers. The heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The same thing the scoffers deliberately forget the Word of God is the very thing that is preserving the heavens and the earth for them. It's reserved for them until the day of judgment. Did you catch, though, the preeminence of God's Word in this section? This is not just Peter uh, exhorting us about end times events and what's going to take place with false teachers. All of this is an argument around and about God's Word. Look back at chapter 3, verse 2. He wants us to be mindful of the words. These are not just any words. These are God's words. These are predictions that were made by inspired authors in the Old Testament. And the commandments that were made not just by any old people, but by apostles who were inspired by God. Look back at at 2 Peter chapter 1. And recall with me 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Follow along as I read these verses for us. 2 Peter 1, 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or or cunningly devised scheme or source. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, Peter wants them to be mindful of God's Word. But notice again in verse 7, The Word of God is the basis for everything that Peter believes. He is calling for us to embrace God's Word over what scoffers and doubters may propose. God's Word, verse 7, is going to be that which preserves the heaven and earth and reserves it until the day of judgment for ungodly men. The Word of God is going to be what will condemn the unrighteous and ungodly men for their actions. So we are to embrace God's Word. We are to be mindful of God's Word. 
How much does God's Word impact your daily life? When you're at your desk at work, do you embrace God's Word? When you're at a game cheering on a family member, do you embrace God's Word? When times are good and the money is flowing, are you mindful of God's Word? When you're exhausted and feel like giving up, do you cling to God's Word? Kids, do you treasure God's Word more than your favorite video game? Kids, do you treasure God's Word more than your pet or prized possession? Peter here calls us to embrace God's Word. But that's not the only thing he calls us to embrace. In verses 8-13, through Peter calls us to embrace God's promise. That's our second point this morning. Embrace God's promise. Follow along as I pick up reading 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. To some degree, Peter spends the first seven verses of chapter 3 helping us orient how we are to think. We are to be mindful. But what ought to calibrate our minds? What ought to guide what we believe and feel? He tells us we ought to be mindful of the words. But here in verses 8 to 13, Peter goes further and gives us another exhortation as we await the return of Christ. It isn't enough to just have good theology as we wait for the return of Christ. Our lives need to be shaped by our eager expectation of Christ's return. You notice that both in verse 1 and in verse 8, he starts out with the word beloved. Why does he start out that way? This shows us the tender pastoral heart of Peter as he writes. He's not writing out of anger to these believers. He's not writing out of a sense of futility. He's writing because he genuinely cares for them and wants to shepherd them through the scoffers and the false teachers. He wants them to embrace God's Word and to embrace God's promise. There is in verses 8 to 13 one main thing Peter wants his audience to not forget, and then two things that kind of come along with that that support this one thing. The main thing that Peter doesn't want his audience to forget is that God's idea of time is not the same as ours. Look at what he says in verse 8 Do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. His perspective is different than our perspective. His eternity far exceeds our own finite time. This 
This is a reference back to Psalm 90, verse 4, which if we had time, we went back and looked at Psalm 90, we would see this great contrast between the eternalness and infiniteness of God and the temporalness and finiteness of man. God does not do things on our schedule. He does things on His schedule. And he uses two ideas to kind of support that. The first is in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. One might think that if God does things on a different schedule than us, would He forget? Is He just not ambitious? Is He just kind of dilly-dallying, kind of waiting for the time whenever he feels like it, and then he's going to return. No. Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The second idea that Peter uses to support the fact that God's timetable is not our timetable is down in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. This reality is true. It will come and it will sneak up on you like a thief in the night. Why do thieves typically not steal in broad daylight? Because they can be seen. And the whole point of a thief is he doesn't want to be seen. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Back up to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness. In other words, he's mindful of his promise. He's aware of what he has said he will do. However, notice what Peter points us to. But is long-suffering toward us. His long-suffering is immense towards us. Moses will write in Exodus 34.6 that God is a God who is long-suffering. Jonah 4.3, Jonah accuses God. I knew you wouldn't execute justice because you are a God who is long-suffering and loves mercy. In other words, God's promise hasn't yet come. Not because God is slow, but because of His patient love toward sinners. Friend, how grateful are you for God's long-suffering towards you? That when we fail to follow Him, that He is long-suffering towards us. Peter continues in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And what will this entail? The day of the Lord might sneak in as a thief, but it's it's a reality that will not be missed by any in the world. It will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I saw the other night when the Phillies played at home, there were, on two instances, activity that registered on the seismology chart. In other words, the city of Philadelphia at several points was actually shaking. That's how great the noise was in the stadium. But I've got news for you. The return of Christ is going to make that sound like a whisper. He will return 
in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. These are indeed significant events. In fact, world-altering events. But wait a minute. There's something in verse 9 that deserves our attention. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness. But is long-suffering towards us. The verse doesn't stop there. Peter writes, not willing that any should perish. In other words, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How are we to understand Peter's statement in verse 9? That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some come to this verse and appeal to the belief that God wants everyone to be saved. Some go a step further and appeal not just that God wants everyone to be saved, but that everyone will indeed be saved. And they advocate for for universal redemption. That is, God doesn't just want everyone to be saved. He goes a step further and will save everyone because He doesn't want anyone to perish. Are either of these views what Peter has in mind in this passage? I think if we take a moment and carefully look at the context, we see a different emphasis. So let's start by asking who are the any and the all in verse 9? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who are the any and the all in chapter 3, verse 9? Well, Let's look back in verse 9. Let's look back in verse 9. And you'll see at the beginning of verse 9 that the Bible says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Or, another translation has that you. It's a plural pronoun. Us, you. How we understand this passage has massive implications for how we understand this verse. For example, if I'm addressing a group of people and I ask if anyone wants $1,000, do I mean that anyone in the world can get the $1,000? If you go for ice cream with your family and you turn to them and say, I'll buy you all some ice cream, does that include everyone in the ice cream shop and in the parking lot and who stops by the ice cream shop? No, because context helps us to understand the all or the any. So there's this us. But if we look back earlier in the context, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there is a beloved. Even in verse 8, there is a beloved. There is a group of people that Peter has in mind here. Look back at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and he doesn't just say beloved. He says, I now write to you, that is a plural pronoun, the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your plural pronoun, pure minds by way of reminder, that you, plural pronoun, may be mindful of the words. Clearly, the any and the all are linked to the us and the beloved. So who is the audience that Peter is writing to? Let's go back and look at 2 Peter chapter 1. He tells us at the very beginning of this letter who he's writing to. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. 
Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing to those who have obtained like precious faith. Christians. It makes sense then, contextually, to understand this verse as Peter seeking to comfort and exhort the believers he's writing to. On the one hand, God doesn't want any of the us in the church to perish or fall away. He doesn't want them to become captive to the scoffers and their false teaching. He wants them to repent. This is a warning to those in the church who might be swayed by the scoffers. But it is also a warning to the scoffers. Judgment is real. Judgment is coming. And what Peter is exhorting us to do is to embrace God's promise and repent of sin. Peter's saying, scoffers, don't play Russian roulette with God's patience. This understanding of 2 Peter 3.9 aligns with what Jesus said in John 6.37-39. Jesus says, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me, and the One who comes to Me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. This is the will of the Father who sent Me, that of all He has given Me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. There's echoes even of Ezekiel 18 in here. Ezekiel 18, 21-23 reads this way, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So God desires that men would repent. They would turn to Christ. There's a connection to what Christ has done on the cross for us here because the idea of repentance doesn't just stop at a Christian's duty. It's fundamental to becoming a Christian. Friend, have you ever trusted in Christ for salvation? Have you ever repented of your sins and turned to Him for eternal life? Oh friend, I beg you this morning, if you have never trusted in Christ and repented of your sin and turned to Him in faith for salvation, come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus today. Peter brings his argument home in verses 11 to 13. He gives us two commands in verses 11 to 13. One for us in this present life. He asks us a question. It's it's a really long question. He says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And then verse 12 is basically him re-explaining everything that's going to take place. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But he wants us to ponder how these realities of Christ's return ought to impact us in the present life. 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? But then there's another exhortation for us. There's one for us as we await future life. Look with me at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If we affirm and embrace the truth and inspiration of God's Word, if we affirm and embrace God's promises as true, especially His promised return, then we ought to ponder what effect those realities should have on us. Peter exhorts us to live in light of Christ's return because of its devastating effect on all that the world holds dearly. Did you notice the extensiveness of the destruction at Christ's return? Twice in verse 10 and in verse 12, he mentions the elements will melt with fervent heat. Twice he talks about how everything will be burned up with fire at the end of verse 10 and again in verse 12. Twice he talks about how everything will be dissolved in verse 11 and again in verse 12. But notice the contrast. In verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. But notice in verse 13, what are we looking for? We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Nothing in this world will last unless it is of spiritual worth. And that's why Jesus encourages us to lay up treasure in heaven. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on on earth. Why? Because moths corrupt, they rust, thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. That is something that will stand the test of fire. So how would you live your life if you truly believed that the day of the Lord is coming and that everything in this world will be burned up? How would you live your life? This is something that, that I wrestled with this week. How, what would life look like if I truly believed, if I embraced God's Word and the promise in God's Word of Christ's return? What would my life look like if I truly believed that the day of the Lord is coming and that everything in this world would be burnt up? That's worth, ask, that's worth asking and answering because oftentimes we act like we don't believe that reality. What things would you not spend time doing? What gadgets would you not buy? What things would you not treasure? What causes would you not get wrapped up in if you truly believed that the day of the Lord is coming and that everything in this world would be burned up? Do you invest in God's call to holy conduct and godliness? Moms and dads, do your kids clearly see that priority in your life? Teens, as you prepare to be an adult, are you pointed in this direction? Are you striving to embrace God's Word and embrace God's promise and live in the reality of what His Word says and what His Word will accomplish? 
for all of us in a few weeks when you gather around the Thanksgiving table with family? Will your embracing of God's Word and God's promises be evident by your actions and speech? Even now, as you scour the internet and flyers for Black Friday deals and savings, how should this text influence your desires and actions? Saints, let's enjoy the gifts God gives us, yes. But let's also not neglect holy conduct and godliness in our pursuit of those gifts. Peter calls us to embrace God's Word and to embrace God's promise. So may God give us grace to be governed by His Word and His promises so that we pursue holy conduct and godliness as we look for His return. Let's pray. Father, we we need to be rebuked and we need to be encouraged and we need to be exhorted by Your Word. Thank You that it is It was not cunningly devised, but it has been divinely originated through You. It is Your Word. We come to You this morning desiring to embrace it, to live in light of it, to embrace Your promises, and and to consider what sort of persons we ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. Oh, Father, help us to be mindful. Help us, let us not forget. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.